Um, also, as we uh, begin, we're, we're starting a new series, and the series is focusing on how we deal with some pretty heavy spiritual issues head on, and that's the, the significance of where we want to go today. And I was uh, thinking a little bit about um, you know, how we, how we want to monitor certain things in our lives and things that um, make some sense for us is when we get a handle on it, uh, we know what to do. Now, stress is one of those things that can cause a lot of trouble in your life. Would you agree with that? Anybody ever been under stress before? Like four or five of you? Okay, that's pretty good. Well, stress is one of those things, if we're not careful, it can really have some um, uh, bad effects for you. You know, uh, last year, um, I, I was shocked a little bit. Uh, I had uh, come to a point in my life where, where uh, my heart didn't feel right. I just kind of felt like, you know, uh, some things were happening with my heart rate. I wasn't really sure what it was, so I had a checkup with my doctor, and uh, he examined me and uh, did an EKG, and he said, you know, Bob, you, you need to go see a cardiologist. So he uh, got me in very quickly to go see a cardiologist. I went and saw her. Uh, she put me through some very rigorous testing. Have you ever had one of those nuclear stress tests where you not only run on the treadmill, but it also like pumps at your heart and does all that? Well, well, I passed that with flying colors. And, uh, but when, one of the things that she looked at was she was uh, looking at all sorts of things. And the first thing that she let me know, which I breathe a sigh of relief, was that I actually have a heart. And, uh, you know, I know sometimes people wonder about that, but I do. And, uh, but what she said was, she said, Bob, your heart's in great shape. You're, you know, even though you're a, a big guy, your, your heart's in great condition. It's not heart. What it is, it's situational stress. And, uh, you know, I never thought about monitoring my heart before until that situation happened last year. And I began to uh, understand a little bit more about my body uh, in, in dealing with things like that. And, and you know, growing up, uh, I, I was never really told to monitor my heart, so to speak, but I was told to monitor some other things, like monitor how much sugar we were eating as kids, did that. Um, had to monitor, you know, how many vegetables we were eating during the day to make sure that we were, you know, getting what we needed for that. So, so monitoring those kind of things really said that it was more of a behavioral piece. And my parents were big on monitoring behavior. And whenever we were good boys, there were four boys in the family, when we were good boys, we got rewarded for that. And when our behavior wasn't so good, um, my parents believed in spanking, and, and so we got spanked. And, and we realized that, that we could tell when our behavior was good or when it wasn't so good. And I remember, uh, and it was not so good, uh, trust me, in, in a lot of instances, I gathered with some uh, friends one time. I was um, uh, early teen years, and we decided to, to climb up the grassy knoll area on the 408, which is the east-west expressway in Orlando. And we thought we would uh, have a little fun. We took some oranges with us, and uh, we started throwing them at cars. Uh, is there coming on? I know, you know, it, that's back when I was working on my testimony, folks. Uh, but, uh, you know, so we started throwing them at cars and stuff, and, and we were having a great time until one of the cars that I threw an orange at was an Orange County deputy sheriff. And uh, the lights came on, and he zoomed down, and the big spotlight came down. We ran like all get out. This is a true story. We ran like all get out down that grassy knoll, uh, jumped over this huge fence that was there into an orange grove, and he was shining the light and looking for us and all that stuff. And I tell you what, it scared me to death. I didn't want to go to jail. And uh, it scared me to death. And I tell you what, because of my behavior and getting caught the way that I did, I, I made the decision that I would never throw an orange at a car again. And, and you know... That's a good practice, right? And, and so what we find out, though, is sometimes our behavior has to get corrected. 
And when it gets corrected, we begin to see a little bit more about ourselves and we begin to see a little bit more about the person we wanna be. So what I found out in my life was pain and disappointment and the threat of going to jail and throwing oranges at uh, deputy sheriff cars, that those are the kinds of things that really get our attention and, and it makes us focus our individual attention on, on not only our behavior, but more importantly, um, it, it gets to the root of why we're acting the way that we are. And this is where I'm trying to get to here is our heart um, really is a huge part, a huge component about defining who we are as an individual. And, and I believe that it's through the actions of our heart and the things that we impress upon our hearts that really detail and, and dictate the kind of person that we're going to become. So as followers of Jesus, we're, we're really told that behavior is important, but the Scripture says more about the heart than it really says about behavior. In fact, the Scripture says that the heart has to be transformed, or as Paul would say, that we must have a, a circumcision of our heart. We must have something in our heart that, that changes the way that we are, and then by changing our heart, we become a, a new creation. So I started examining a little bit about what is it about our hearts, what is it about the challenges that we have in our hearts and the things that are going on there, uh, what is it that we really wrestle with? And I thought, found out that there's a couple of bandits that, that really stress our hearts. There's a couple of things that if we're not careful, if we don't manage and if we don't get a handle on these things of our heart, they're going to make sure that we have bad relationships. It's going to make sure that we're not good with each other, that we're out of focus with God. It's just going to make sure that we're not a good person at all. And here are the four enemies of the heart. There's guilt, there's anger, there's greed, and there's jealousy. So these are the four huge topics that we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks as we deal with these issues of the heart. So there's one thing that I discovered, and, and that is that um, when you have a secret, all is safe, but the minute a secret gets out, it kind of loses its lure and its luster. If you've ever been somebody who did something and you were hiding it secretively, there, there's something kind of a high that goes with that, right? I know something or I've done something that you don't know about it. But once it gets out in the light, once it gets outside, once it begins to project to others, it loses its luster. We see a lot of imagery in the Bible about darkness and light. And theologically, what it means is darkness means evil or sin, and light means God and, and goodness. And we see examples in the Gospel of John, like the story of Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, and he was a, 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 a quiet disciple of Jesus. And it says that Nicodemus came out of the darkness into the light, so to speak, as he met Jesus and talked about ways of being born again. So this transformation of our life, of coming out of the darkness into the light, of exposing the secrets of our souls is what gets our heart in the right condition. And it's when we begin to allow that to come out of us, the guilt that we're holding onto in our life begins to ebb away. Now in the church, we call the word that makes that happen confession. Say the word confession. Confession. Now, now, I'm not talking about like simple kind of things, like when we, when we do like silly stuff and we apologize for it, like, um, I don't know, like, yes, dear, I used the credit card yesterday and put $250 on it because I took Bobby Van Dyne to the all-you-can-eat burrito buffet, you know? I mean, that, that's kind of one of those little confessions that, that we just kind of get away with. Or, or, you know, yeah, Grandma, I'm the one that left the door open and the cat got out. I mean... There's that. Or here's one that's really close to our home. Uh, yes, officer, my grandchildren did tell me that that light was red as I ran through it. If you want to know more about that story, ask Patty. But anyway, um, <clears throat> so, so anyway, 
Uh, so, so these kind of minor confessions, um, they're designed to ease our mind. So these minor confessions are really about us trying to feel less guilty about ourselves, trying to feel better about ourselves, rather than dealing with the whole issue. And, and it's, uh, it's these secrets that we hold on to that keep us living in turmoil. Uh, I learned a very important scripture in 1 John 1, 9, and, and I hold true to it today, but when I first heard this scripture, I didn't see it, read it, understand it the same way I do today. Here's, here's what it says. If we confess our sins, God is faithful uh, and, just, uh, and just and to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of everything that, uh, that we've done wrong. Another translation is that God is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, he cleanses us of all unrighteousness, which means all wrong behavior and, and makes us new again. Well, when I first learned this scripture, um, I, I looked at that and I said to myself, okay, so if I am doing the wrong things, if all I have to do is say, God, I did this, 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 and this, then the slate's clean and, and I can just go on with life and not have to worry about anything. That all I had to do was just make that confession. And so, so I got to a point in my life where, where literally I would write down at the end of the day, all the things that I had done that I thought were sins, sins I had committed, sins that I had forgotten about what life is supposed to be, so sins of omission, sins of commission, and all those things. And I would go, before I'd go to bed, I would sit there and I'd start praying, God, I did this, God, I did this. I'd go with my behavior, I'd go with my thoughts, I'd go with my spiritual soul, I'd go with all that. And then I'd get at the very end, very, very legalistically, knowing that I'm coming to the culmination where John 1, or 1 John 1, 9 says that all I have to do is say this and God just forgives all of that and I'm just honky-dory ready to go. And I got to the end and I offered up what I call the umbrella prayer. And I believe that some of you might also do the umbrella prayer. And that umbrella prayer is, and oh, by the way, all those things that I've forgotten, those things that I'm not mentioning, forgive me of those too. And so you go to bed and you think, okay, God just, if God does his part. Then, then my sins are forgiven and I'm all good. Well, what I learned was that by living into the seeing that scripture as my get out of jail free card, I was abusing what the word of God had to say. And I was not living into a life that really dealt or effectuated a change of my life, but it was more of a, I just need to say this and it's done and I, I'm beyond that. So, so I got to a point where I started saying, well, wait a minute, you know, uh, something else has got to change here and something um, has to, has to um, uh, move me in a direction where I can see things are different from there. So I would be tempted to make bad decisions because I knew, well, if I just say 1 John 1, 9, then, then everything is good and I'm free because God is going to forgive that and God's going to uphold his end of the deal like the scripture says and I'm going to be okay. So before long, my confession habits were supporting my sin habits. Did you hear that? My confession habits were supporting my sin habits. All I need to do is this, because that's what the scripture says, and I can keep doing that, because that's what the scripture says. So, so what I learned out of that was that something was out of balance. 
Um, I have a, a couple of friends that are retired Catholic priests, and, and, I, and I love them to death. And, and, and we, we get together once a month for breakfast. We call it the Holy Father's Meeting. And, uh, you know, we get together and, and we talk about ministry. We talk about challenges that, we, that they experience as in their 50 years of, of, of being priests. I talk about, you know, my 23 years plus of, of challenges in ministry. And, and it's amazing how all of us have struggled with the same thing. We've struggled with the things, same things in the church. We've struggled with the same things in, in, in leading people in the name of Christ. We've struggled with humanity. We've struggled with all those things. But in the Catholic church, it's quite unique because basically Catholics go and they sit in a little booth and they confess their sins to their priest and then they walk out of the booth and it's like, woo, you know, life's good again. And they go on their own way and then the priest, you know, absolves them of their sin. And when we were talking about that, I, I asked a silly question. I said, does it really work that way? And they looked at me and they said, you know, we've kind of wondered that ourselves. Because, you know, we were kind of taught that confession was guilt relief. And, and they're like, it's got to be more than that. And so we were on to something, and we, and we talked a little bit more about that. And what, what I realized was that, that confession is not effective unless there's a change in our heart. Confession is not complete unless the one who is confessing actually has some sort of change of their spiritual behavior. That confession cannot be what God intended it to be if we simply are using it as a means to relieve ourselves of guilt that we're carrying in life. So imagine with me for a second, imagine with me you have a sister, uh, a sister who continuously steals from you, okay? This is all imaginary. So your sister steals from you. Your sister has embarrassed you publicly. Your sister talks behind your back. Your sister uh, does all these horrible things to you, but once a week, your sister comes to you and says, will you forgive me for what I've done to you? So think about that. No sooner do you turn around and she's right there asking you for a favor. She's treated you that way all along. She's asked you to forgive her. She goes back and she does the same thing. And then out of the wild blue, she says, but can you also do me a favor? Can you help me with this? Or can you help me with that? I mean, what kind of relationship would you characterize that to be? It's not a good one. In fact, it's pretty dysfunctional if we want to be honest about it. But if we think about it, is that not sometimes the relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. We go to God, we ask for the favor, we ask for this, then there's several other days in between where we're just going on with life, doing what we wanna do, large and in charge, out of covenant with God, and then we come back to God, oh, forgive me of this. And, and so, so if, it's a, if it's a dysfunctional relationship with your earthly sister, what kind of relationship is it with our Heavenly Father? And I think that's the huge thing that we have to look about. If we're, if we're not careful, we can approach confession, um, as an, uh, and it can be an insult to God in a sense that, that we're just kind of using God to make ourselves feel better. If I just tell God I don't want this or I did this or that, then I can walk away and I can feel better, and it's good. But you know what? It's, it's, it's an amazing thing that God's love is unconditional. It's an amazing thing that God's grace is sufficient. It's an amazing thing that God's grace, which is defined as, as God's unearned, uh, we can't earn God's love. It's God's unconditional favor that God loves us in our sinful state so much that God is willing to love us through that. That is an amazing piece of the gospel story, right? 
Are you listening? Are you following me at all? And this is the piece that we've got to get. So, so where did we go wrong? Because we so often find ourselves repeating this cycle. We live out a covenant. We go back to God. We whisper, please forgive me. We hang on to the words of 1 John 1, 9. We go back to a life that's just a perpetual movie that goes on and on and on. And here's what I think. I think, I think that we're pretty good at the confession game. I think that, that we're pretty good about that. We, we've gotten to the point where we, we, we kind of understand that we can approach God and we can confess our sins and we can be that. And, and really what's behind our motives in confessing is we truly believe if I just go do this, God will remove me of my guilt and, and, and God will get off my case. And that's kind of where we find ourselves, that if we confess our sins in order to make ourselves feel better about what we've done. And according to our way of thinking, if we confess, then I go back to go, and it gives me an opportunity to keep on back, then I gotta confess and I go back to go, and I just go back to that cycle over and over and over again. But how does confessing to God remedy when I've wronged you? I can go to God and say, God, you know, uh, Patty and I had this blowout fight. This is all, you know, made up. But, um, you know, we had this blowout fight, and I just ask you to forgive me for the words that I said to her. But what good is it if I just say that to God and I don't go to my wife and say, forgive me for what I've done? You see, this is so important because we, we, we hold on to those words that, that it's just a secret kind of confession to God, and we don't need to worry about our relationships with one another, and that's not at all what the Scripture says. The proper definition of confession is to admit or to acknowledge something. So first of all, we have to say, that is wrong, and then we have to acknowledge it. And the Scripture says that, that confession is only valid when confession leads to something very important, and confession is only valid when it leads to change. Confession is just one step in a sequence of steps that leads us out of feeling guilty about things. But it's got to change our lifestyle. It's got to change our behavior. It's got to change our heart. It's got to change the person that we are in order for it to truly be confession in the biblical sense. In the early days of the Christian church, um, they weren't allowed to, to reconfess something that they had confessed as a sin. Sounds kind of bizarre. It was only like one and out, you know. You can only confess this once. And, and here's why. Because in the early church, they saw confession for what it really was. Because when you confessed in the early church, what it meant was that you were making the commitment to change your life. Confession, repentance, you know, uh, the word is penance, and that's kind of what we do in order to show our woundedness of the way we've aggrieved one another. And pen penance comes from the word repentance. And repentance means to change direction. Repent in Hebrew literally means to change direction. So that's like me getting in my car, driving in the wrong direction, just ask my wife, I do it all the time, and then realize... So we have to repent, and it has to mean something, and it has to be what the Scripture says. The Scripture says when we confess our sins, there must be restitution, repentance, and restoration. And restoration. In the Old Testament, confession was a, confession was a, a, public, uh, a public act. 
And what we saw in this public act was that uh, it wasn't just to be done in private, but it was to be done publicly. And God says to Moses in Numbers 5, God says, when a man or a woman commits any sin, the person has broken trust with God. So when we sin, there is a valley, there's a chasm, there is a separation between us and God. We have broken the trust with God, we're guilty, and we must confess the sin. And then listen to what it says, full compensation plus 20% must be made to whoever was wrong. Now, we go back and we say, Old Testament, it was all about, you know, paying off and all that stuff. Here's really what it means, you know, as Christians today, because the Old Testament is our Bible. What it, what it means is that, that I can't just merely confess, but I have to restore the person that I've wronged. And I have to make sure they understand that I'm here to, to restore them. For the Jew, it, it wasn't about feeling better about themselves. It was about making things right. And if you sinned against someone else, you went out of your way to restore that relationship. It wasn't enough to say that you were sorry. Um, God was only interested in one thing. Okay, are you going to change? Are you going to be new? And having to go public with your sin and make restitution literally meant that that you were taking it seriously. Because think about it. When you go to somebody eyeball to eyeball and you look them and say, I did this against you and it grieves my heart and I ask your forgiveness. Does that not have a more powerful impact on your life than merely just having a prayer in private. When John the Baptist came on the scene, he called people to repentance uh, as well as for the confession of their sins. Uh, Here's what Mark says. Mark says, John the baptizer appeared in the wild preaching a baptism of life change that leads to forgiveness of sins. People thronged to him from Judea and Jerusalem and as they what? As they confessed their sins, they were baptized by him in the River Jordan into what? A changed life. So when they confessed their sin, they knew that it led to a change and a transformation of their life. So so there was nothing private about this. These were not behind-the-scenes conversations. Uh, In those days, it was publicly done. It was connected with the community of faith. John's hearers were going public with their intentions to live a changed life. John's um, followers were making sure that everybody knew that because Christ was in their heart, that they would make it right with their neighbor. So confession in the early church wasn't simply about feeling better or removing some guilt that we had. It was actually about restoring and making resolution with someone else. So so over and over in the Bible, we see this powerful means of prayer of confession. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he writes this, prayer that comes from faith will heal the sick, for the Lord will restore them to health. So praying, praying and, and restoration is important. And if they have sinned, they will be forgiven for this reason. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. Now, I read into this that James is implying that healing cannot happen unless we're confessing our sins to each other and healing cannot happen unless we're praying for each other. So we've got to move beyond this solo uh, faith thing of me and Jesus. We've got to remember we're the community of faith. We are the body of Christ. We are connected in community together. James goes on to write, for this reason, confess your sins each to the other so they may be healed, that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful 
and what it can achieve. So according to this passage, when we publicly come together and honor that we want to make things right with one another, we begin to see healing occur. Now, this is what Jesus had in mind when he was talking to his listeners. And, and Jesus said that, that um, you know, worship is important. And I preached on this a couple of months ago, that, that worship is an important aspect of our faith. But the scripture clearly says there's, there's something that's even more important in our worship with God. There's only one thing that we're allowed to do to, to disrupt our worship time with God. And here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go, so you can't even worship, but first go and be reconciled to them and then come back and spend time in worship. So where we forget this is we forget our connectedness. We forget that God says that we cannot be right with God if we're wrong with our neighbor. We cannot be right with God if we're wrong with our spouse. We cannot be right with God if we're wrong with our siblings. We cannot be right with God if we're wrong with the world. That the two are connected. And it's the important thing that we see here. We cannot resolve our differences with God if we're unwilling to resolve our differences with the people who are around us. We cannot be in fellowship with the Father and out of fellowship with others because of something that we have done or they have done. They go hand in hand. So secretly confessing to God or to a priest is no substitute for confessing openly to someone whom we have wronged. Are you catching this? It's so important that we get this. Part of, part of our walking with God is understanding that um, we need to make the phone call that we've been hesitating to make. Part of our walking with God means that, that we need to write the note that we have so desperately said, I don't need to write that or I'm afraid to write that. We need to set up the meeting with the person that we have wronged and, and um, that we've dreaded doing. And that's the only way we can be set free from this. Because see, as, as sinners, we're going to be repeat offenders unless we get this right. And I'm convinced that if we look each other in the eyeball and if we have an honest, heartfelt, repentful conversation, that that begins the place of healing that's amongst us. And when we begin to do this together, we begin to see that we don't commit that action again. Here's two examples. You tell your teacher you cheat on an exam the odds are you won't cheat on an exam again. You tell your employer that you've been fudging the sales numbers every month just so that you can get on her good side. If she lets you keep your job, the odds are you'll probably not fudge the numbers on your sales report anymore. Do you see how important public confession is? So God says, come together. God says, live into this. God says that when we make that a priority, healing will come. So today... Head on, I want you to take time this week and I want you to identify in your mind and in your heart who it is that you need to reconcile with, who it is that you need to restore, who it is that you need to get resolution with. And I want to encourage you to take those healthy steps to do that because the scripture says only until we do that will we be guilt-free and guilt-free is what we seek.